I'll first be reading from Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming to the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have upset the whole world, and they've come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowds in the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Now from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us. And the Lord, and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Acacia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report to us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait on his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, we can't thank you enough, and we're longing to see you and give you praise and to, and to just see as we should see. Right now we're limited. We don't fully understand, and we can't wait because we're held back by our own fallen natures. But we thank you for the Holy Spirit that shows us, that teaches us, that opens your word to us to see more every day. Help us in this message to see more of you. And to thank you that you have delivered those who believed in you from the wrath to come. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen. In 2004, Wang Yi was included in the list of the 50 most influential public intellectuals of China by Southern People Weekly. But in 2005, he trusted Christ and was baptized and started to serve in a house church, later founding New Reign Congregation, but unregistered with the Chinese government. It grew to around 700 members. He was among the few pioneering Christian human rights attorneys in China. But on May 11, 2018, Wang Yi and his wife were arrested 
But amazingly, they were both released on Saturday, the 17th, and then he preached on Sunday, the 18th, at his congregation. I would like to read to you a short excerpt of that sermon. I think it's appropriate for our message and because of receiving back Tom here. Doesn't this Sunday seem especially precious in the presence of the Lord? The night before I was taken away to the central investigation area of the Chengdu Police Bureau, this time I went through the formal procedures. I had to take off all my clothes. They took away all my belongings. Finally, they even took away my wedding ring. What was I thinking at that time? It was like the chief priest going into the most holy place. He had to leave behind all his belongings and relationships because he would meet the Lord face to face by himself. Do we long for the Lord's second coming? Do we long for the end of history, but still long for Christ to be known by others before that day of wrath? Beginning on Sunday, this is uh, my caption now, beginning on Sunday, December 9th of 2019, over 100 members of New Rain Church in China and Chengdu were arrested, including Wang Yi. He was sentenced to nine years of criminal detention. And if you do the math, as I preach, he's still in prison right now. And I wonder what brings him and his wife and their church comfort and hope? What brought Tom and Debbie hope? What brings my wife now home alone with four sick kids hope? All the way from imprisonment for the sake of the gospel to the struggles that we have in daily life, I think it's the same thing at its core, that Jesus will return one day and that those who love him will meet him face to face. And that's all of our hope. We need to remember that. And I believe that's what Paul wanted the Thessalonians to remember in their suffering and persecution, as Paul himself and his mission team remembered the same thing. In a short while, all of us will meet the Lord Jesus face to face. That's great encouragement. But I also want to offer a note. I think this book can speak prophetically to us as a church in this sense. If you look around at the trajectory in Canada, in Europe, in the United States, opposition has already started. It's not coming. There is opposition to the gospel and those who love Jesus and his name alone. People arrested for praying and they're kicked out of jobs for posting the wrong thing, right? There is opposition, but certainly to follow unless God does a miraculous work is persecution and suffering. And so this book also offers us a view of maybe a handbook of how to handle that well. What's important to believers under persecution? What should we be thinking of and hoping for and praying for? And so it's an encouragement and maybe some prophetic words to us about the future. Who knows? Now, I want to note another important passage here. We can go to Matthew 24. We'll do that later. I think it's important to hear what our Lord says about this subject. But I want to read to you something that helped me click exactly what is going on here. And it's from Acts 17 and verses 30 and 31. I'd never put this together with the gospel presentations um, that Paul was giving. And as I was thinking through how he would have presented the gospel to these Gentiles, more about that in a minute, in Thessalonica, I think this passage has a lot to say about what he would have said. I'll begin in verse 
30. Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is Jesus Christ. And so at the very end of his gospel presentation in Athens, we have him setting forth a man who will come. Really important, I think, for our subject here in the book of Thessalonians. I'm sure it's nearly the same thing he spoke to these people we're going to read about and think about. Now, a couple of relevant points about the Thessalonian church. Uh, And one, I'll just say up here, you can see this beautiful view of Mount Olympus. (laughs) So if you will, and I want to start here a little bit, Zeus owned this mountain or lived on this mountain, depending on where you read, what you think about. And he was a big figure. And here comes Paul, all beaten up, like a yapping dog next to a god sitting on this mountain. This is a view that these people would have. I think that's important to have in the back of our mind. This city, Thessalonica, was a big provincial capital and a seaport. And it, means, it just means a lot of people went through there and they were the rougher, rougher sort uh, when Bob preached about this, I love what he did. He had Emil read uh, the KJV of Acts 17, 5 about Thessalonians. It says they were lewd fellows of the baser sort. It's <laughs> I just I laugh at that because that is a good description. So it kind of gives you the idea of who these people are. Um, let me, I think that another thing in my own life might help us here. Think about these raw pagans in Dubuque, Iowa. Now, I know Emmaus is there. But it is a river town. It was founded as a river town. That's where I went to Emmaus Bible College. That's where I met my lovely wife. Um, but it not only is a river town, it has multiple universities. And everyone knew that it was a rough town. It was a drinking town. And just to make sure this wasn't some kind of anecdotal bad memory of mine, I looked it up. And in 2021, it, it ranked second for drunkenness in the U.S. Wow. So... My, that college, like you can have in your mind a rough port city, right? A, a place where the gospel is going through. There are crossroads, the Via Ignatia is there. Many writers attribute this kind of culture to Thessalonica. Drunkenness, rampant idolatry, gifts, prostitution associated with that stuff. That's the town in which Paul preaches and we're going to study I also want to note, I think it's important for us to think about on this journey, he's not alone. And this is something that's hit me, especially with the book of Thessalonians. Three people are addressed, are, are, are said to be writing it. It's addressed from three men. He has a team with him. He picked up Timothy and Lystra at the beginning of this, and Silas was commissioned even before that. And so three men come with him to Thessalonica. I think another important note is he actually, in in Acts 20, two other people from Thessalonica join him. So this city has a lot of importance when we think about Acts and the gospel coming in the New Testament. Aristarchus, who is actually mentioned four times and ends up in prison with Paul, joins him in Acts 20, and Secundus, which is only mentioned there, but two men join the missions team. Apparently the gospel had a powerful effect in Thessalonica. I want to summarize with you finally, as you're kind of looking at this map, before we get into some of the book of Thessalonians itself, the situation. And if, you, if you'll remember in Philippi, he was beaten, and so was Silas. Timothy somehow escaped that harsh, harsh treatment. 
but he's chased out of there. Kind of escorted out, but they didn't want him there. And then, after being chased out of Thessalonica and continuing on their journey, in Athens, the mission team is so concerned about this little church, they decide to send Timothy back. And apparently, Paul had been trying to come himself, but Satan himself. Now, that should make us stop for a second. Satan himself had tried to stop Paul from going and had. And so it was Timothy who went. And now he's come back in Corinth, and he's giving an account as he's writing another letter because they had some questions and some concerns Paul had for them as well. So that's where we pick up in 1 Thessalonians answering some of those questions, I think, and just remembering before the Lord what had happened there. These are the themes. So we're starting a four-week series. These are some of the themes. I would love to hear from you if you find others. Certainly there are more. But there are five things that I think I'd like to talk about in these four messages. Number one, the return of Christ. Sixteen times. So that's a lot. (laughs) It's at least that many. There are probably some other veiled, more veiled references, but 16 times often in repetitive verses. He talks about the return of Christ. Suffering and persecution is another big one. Um, And like I said earlier, I think that might have a lot to say to us today. Uh, Methods and motives for ministry. There's some very high-level stuff there that we can just get off the top, but I think there's some principles that we can also apply to how we do ministry, especially evangelistic ministry. And I think this church is a good model for that. Then idleness. I work normally in the youth group. This is a lot of a problem among that age, but in people in general, idleness in the church. I think this speaks to that. And then sexuality is a big deal here in this book, actually. Sanctified sexuality or otherwise coming from that culture. So people that trust the Lord don't change overnight. So he has a lot to say about that in this book. All right. Now, I had a little bit of a problem here, if you will. Thinking through this, I've taught this twice in the middle school, and I've preached it once. I didn't like any of the things I'd done before at a high level. Um, And here's why, and I'd like to walk you through a little bit of that. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. A lot of times when we come to a book, and especially commentaries or, or things written about it, they just give us the surface level of what's going on. And so I could do that. We could look at it and say uh, 1-1 through 3-13 is kind of a big deal because he's remembering what happened, the team's prayers and culminating all of that in 3-11 through 13. Very just surface kind of what's going on at a high level. You could say 4-1 through 5-11 is about doctrine, and it absolutely is. And there are some exhortations there about Christ returning. But this is where I started to really be challenged, I think, and I I hope in the past I've been challenged on this way as well. Most of the commentary and writings out there just, you think I'm joking here, a ton of seemingly unconnected exhortations, even the best ones, that's kind of what they throw out there. Paul is just wrapping up his letter wanting to say a bunch of stuff that he's concerned about. That just didn't sit too well with me. It really didn't, especially when you have things like kiss the brothers. I'm like, man, what is going on here? There's a lot of love, obviously, and I'm not going to preach, hey, here's prescription for you, go kiss someone. No, that's not, right? I think something else is going on. And I think, you, I think we all get that. And honestly, I, just find, I don't find it very helpful often as to what Paul and his team wanted to say to the Thessalonians when we leave it at this high of a level. We leave it just as kind of a summary of what has happened. So... Here's where I'm sitting at right now. I'd love to, again, hear your thoughts, but this is what I've concluded 
on my third or fourth time actually teaching through the book. I think this is about how the Thessalonians should prepare to meet the Lord. And I think you can see that, what we're going to do today in 1-1 through 3-13. The Thessalonians were prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ because they had already received the word. And you can look through there. There's two references that I'm basing that off of 1-6 and then in 2. I think that's the core of this chapter. It's almost like if you have doubts about why God is letting you experience what you are, or if you've ever doubted your salvation, it's such a great encouragement to be reminded, no, I I remember the work of the Lord in you. You are ready. Here's why. So I've split that into today and next week. And I've decided to kind of let you stew on this. Um, In the next one, how does that speak to this subject? If I'm right or if the Lord is working in this, then maybe there's something here in 4.1 through 5.11 that says the same thing. And then the same thing at the end. Maybe the hardest one to kind of connect the dots, if you will. But this is what we're going to be talking about today. How should the Thessalonians and how can we prepare to meet the Lord face to face? Whether when we die and meet him or if he comes, I hope he does before we die. So we're going to be in the first 10 verses of 1 Thessalonians today, and the rest of the time I'm going to split um, today and next time talking about reception of the word. I want to read uh, again with you verses 2 through 5. I'm reading from the ESV, and we're thinking about what did it look like when they received the word? If you were standing there with them, what would it have looked like? from Paul, Timothy, Silas's perspective. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. First thing I want to say about this is the reception of the gospel looked like faith, love, and hope. And all of them in Christ. So a way to read this might be, hey, your faith in Jesus Christ produced work, and we saw it. Your love for Jesus Christ produced labor, And we saw it. Your hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus produced steadfastness in you so that you would continue on. John Calvin, John Maurer gave me John Calvin's quote this time for this, a brief definition of Christianity. I think that's useful. If someone asks you, what is Christianity? Faith in Christ that produces work, right? Hope in Christ that produces steadfastness. Love for Christ that creates hard labor in our lives. That's a cool way to think about it. If anyone asks you or asks me, I might say it that way. I think I have to stop here for a second and say, if in your life, if there is anyone here who these three dispositions of the heart toward Christ are not prevalent, for eternity's sake, step back and say, you know what, Lord, I do not have faith in you. I do not have love for you, and I need to repent and receive the word. That is the only thing that prepares us for his return. It's awesome how the Lord's Supper works so close. That is what we were talking about. Um, Jeff Goins, I love that, right? 
We prepare to meet the Lord by receiving his word, trusting him, loving him, hoping in his return. But these three combinations are what we should look for Paul to unpack and his team in the letter for Thessalonians. How did they love Christ? How did they hope in Christ? There's one more note I want to make in verse 3. I think it is really important for us. The phrase is before our God and Father. Now, this word is probably maybe better translated in the presence of. Now, this is really important for these guys who were... Paul's going to tell them, spend the majority, hey, the Lord is coming. But this is important for our daily lives as well. Everything we do is in the presence of the Lord. In the Father, right? So it's encouraging to these guys to know, and actually Paul only uses this word seven times in all his writing, four of them in 1 Thessalonians. It's important for us and for the Thessalonians to know that God sees what is going on in our lives. His loving gaze never leaves his saints. Such a wonderful truth. And he wanted them to know that because their lives were hard. They had suffered much loss. We're going to talk about some of that. If you're here today and you're feeling that same difficulty, the Lord sees you. Not only will you meet him, Jesus Christ, in the future, but the Father sees you right now. and is You are in his presence. He is with us. That word really means like right here. <laughs> I'm standing before him. Praise God for that. I think it's important to know that Paul wants to speak to them that way, and they should hear that, but we as well. If you're counting, this verse here is the first mention of 16, I think, of that hope of the resurrection and return of Christ. So what did it look like when they received the word? Faith, hope, and love. That's throughout Paul's writings. This way it's a little reversed. He puts hope last. Another way it looked like is God's sovereign, special, amazing, powerful work. It was a big deal to put it mildly. And I want to take a second to look at verse 4, the word chosen or elect. This word is related. It's a matter of love. I want to read you a couple passages, I think, that help us think about what that actually means. The verse is Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not because of you, speaking to the Israelites. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God set his love on these Thessalonians. He delivered them out of this rampant idolatry that was so prevalent. The mountain's right there. It's the stronghold of the gods, and he delivered our God. The only true God delivered them out of the hand because he loved them and chose them, plucked them out, and set his love on them. The other one I think that is important in light of the Acts 7-5 thing about lewd fellows is what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says about all of us. Verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, there's the choosing idea, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what happened in Thessalonica with the Thessalonians. A special work of God, he chooses them out and he sets his love on them. He plucks them out of eternal hell and sets them on a course loved by God. Election is a matter of love. It's also a matter of adoption. And Ephesians 1 is clear about this. You can read there. I don't have time today. But as you're reading through Thessalonians this week, and I hope you do, it's a pretty short book. You could run. If you're running, you could listen to it probably twice through. You can listen to it, read it. But if you're listening in chapter 2, Paul calls himself a mother, a father, and in verse 17, he says, I'm an orphan child away from you for a while. Why is he doing that? They're a family. They're God's adopted family. And I think this is big. Paul loved them. He cared for them like a mother does for a child, like a father for a child, like a brother. And he was sad to be separated. He said, I'm an orphan kid. I'm, I'm brother. I'm your, I'm your mother. I'm your father. This family picture. And as you're reading through, I think that has a lot to do with election. It's a matter of adoption into God's family. And this initiating love of God is our motivator and our comfort in difficult times. Whether suffering for the sake of the gospel or suffering under the curse, that's a motivator and a comfort. I also want to point out here that this gospel came in the Holy Spirit. This was a late edition this morning. Um, no thanks to Bob Deffenbaugh, and I'm thinking about it. It came in the Holy Spirit. You know what? Here's the reality. I could give you the best sermon ever, or Tom could, or you could give an amazing evangelistic presentation, and it would fall flat if God's Spirit is not at work. There, there's just no other way that our eyes can be opened. The Holy Spirit absolutely had to work in these Thessalonians' lives. I think that's true in many areas of our lives. We could be the best parent and preach the gospel so clearly every day. I experience some of that in my own house these days. <laughs> man, that was a great, man, I, that was a great talk. Two seconds later, you know, <laughs> going off and doing the same thing. The Holy Spirit worked in their lives. And that's why he's so sure in power. I believe there's probably miracles done here, though. We don't, we, they aren't recorded for us. But whatever it was, it was powerful by the power of the Holy Spirit. One last note here. Um, I, if you look at verse 5, talking about this demonstration, and it's interesting, Paul is saying, and I believe this word fully convinced is demonstrated by how they lived. So it's not that the Thessalonians were fully convinced, though they were. I think what he's saying is our team was fully convinced that what we are saying to you is the truth and will save you and will change you. That's what he's saying to them. I think it's a little bit like playing hurt. Uh, most of you, I think, know who this is, Michael Jordan, and he played hurt in a famous flu game. He had 103 degree temperature. Uh, he had food poisoning. He had to have fluids and painkillers injected into his body during game five of the 1997 NBA Finals. And I really believe God probably empowered him, however you think about that. He had 38 points. He hit the game-winning three. They won by two. 
And that propelled them on to win that championship. Now, when you look at that, like an average guy, 38, decently high number of points, but isn't it so much more powerful that he did it while playing hurt? I think the same thing is going on here with these missionaries, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They look like trash. I don't know another way to say it than they'd beaten and flogged. They were hungry. They'd walked. This is the first town they stopped at after Philippians. They've been escorted out of the city. They, you know, humanly speaking, who's going to believe these guys in the midst of all the idols? And yet God used that testimony when they were hurt and suffering to save men and women in Thessalonica. In our weakness, and I think this is it, God himself is strong. It, it was a work of God in Thessalonica. What did it look like? A work of God when they received the gospel. A work of God to turn to hope in Christ instead of Zeus on Mount Olympus or other gods. For us too, the gospel comes in power and in the Holy Spirit and in conviction. One of the guys at the breakfast said they didn't just add Jesus to their life. Clearly, he was the treasure of their life. And we can say in our lives too, God did it again. I think there are times in your life where you can say, man, this was a work of God. <laughs> I was weak. It's actually a miracle I'm up here preaching today. Everyone in my family, there were a lot of people praying. I was weak. I was getting sick. My whole family has the flu. And God somehow protected me. God's work. But you know what? Romans 1.16 even says, the gospel is the power of God. It's not just it comes in power, but the gospel is the power of God to change us. And here's what I want us to get, and I think we can learn it from how the Thessalonians responded. It's rarely smooth. In fact, as I was reflecting on this message, think about the times God worked in your life powerfully. I, I, I look back and I can't think of a single one where it was smooth. You know, I even catch myself praying similar words, Lord, please let this be smooth. No, I need to stop that. You know, I need to trust the Lord that in my weakness, he will be strong. And I, I, there's, I think, a relevant story from youth camp last year that uh, on the night we were going to play the big game. It's called Mission Impossible. I see some of the kids listening. They'll know that. Hey there. They love this game. We've played it for years. I think probably Lenny started it, and he's 50 tomorrow, by the way. So it was a long time ago. I got you, Lenny, if you're listening. <laughs> he started this game. The kids love to play it. And then that night, Thursday night at youth camp, there was a storm coming, and it started to lightning. And all the kids are sent to the town hall, like 60 kids with all the leaders, and they are getting frustrated. So I'm out on the field with Sam Johnson, and it's lightning. And I'm praying a couple of things. Number one, after a big lightning strike hit nearby, like literally probably less than half a mile away, I, we duck, Sam and I look at each other, laugh, and I start praying, Lord, this probably isn't wise for me to be out here. Protect Sam and I. That was the first prayer. The second one, <laughs> we literally did that. Anyway, the second one, I was praying, Lord, and here's my thought, I, I would love for the kids to enjoy this game. Please stop the rain. While I was praying that, my sister-in-law, Erin, in town hall was praying a very similar but more spiritual prayer, I have to confess. <laughs> she was saying, she, and she told me afterward, Lord, I just pray that you would let it stay lightning so that I know you have something to do in this evening. 
And God, God answered both those prayers. And I, it was not me. There was no rain around our whole JNK ranch. It was everywhere else. If you looked at the radar, and the lightning stayed. And that night, many, many awesome things happened. A couple of kids had serious conversations with leaders, repented of sin. But it was that night I walked around the track. There's, a, there's kind of a track around JNK with Caleb Wooten for about half an hour. And he trusted the Lord that night. And then a couple days later, six kids were baptized. I mean, look at that. That's not, I was praying something that was quite unspiritual, you know, and God was at work in my weakness, in all of the craziness. That was not a smooth night. It was a hard night, actually. A leader is trying to tell kids they're not going to get to play their favorite game. God worked. And it, it was just such a wonderful, beautiful, humbling time. And I think that's a lot like what happened here at Thessalonica. And I think it has a lot of what happened there, what happened in my experience, is a lot to teach us about the power of the gospel. It won't be smooth, but God will get the glory. That's what it looked like, but what did it produce? What did it produce? Uh, I think 6 through 10 tell us about that. I'm going to read it in the ESV again. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Reception of the word produced this turn, produced this repentance, but it also produced suffering and joy. I'd like to read a quote to you from Let the Nations Be Glad. It's page 71. We measure... The worth of a hidden treasure by what we will gladly sell to buy it. If we sell all, then we measure the worth as supreme. If we will not, what we have is treasured more. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. And buys that field. That's Matthew 13, 44. The extent of his sacrifice and the depth of his joy display the worth he puts on the treasure of God. Loss and suffering joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God show the supremacy of God's worth more clearly in all the world than all worship and all prayer. You could add anything else you want to. Do you see that happening with the Thessalonians? I do. Suffering and joy because Jesus was now their treasure. I have a story in my own life for this. I remember, sorry, Dad. I remember going to church when I was younger. And I could not for the life of me, it was a small brethren church that had pews like these but no cushions. Yeah. I could not for the life of me figure out why my parents and many adults And some teenagers, few, but some, wanted to be there. For me, it was like, this is suffering. 
I have to get in the car. I get thwacked or spanked or whatever every time because I hate going there. And let alone, my brother and I would always, see, it was, we had a longer pew. And my brother and I would always fight for the end of that pew. And one would sit and then the other would try to sneak in there because we didn't want to be close to our parents so that we could get away with whatever. But they always got us anyway. I just, I could not understand. It was the furthest from where I wanted to be. And so we would often try to convince my parents to take us to Donut Land. <laughs> and when the few occasions, Dad, that this actually happened, I was rejoicing. <laughs> yes, my donut. I don't have to go sit with these boring people at church. Um, my joy was clearly there in the wrong place. I was rejoicing over a donut. Man, what I was missing. I was not a believer then, I don't think. My love for donuts echoed out in my family and my brothers in the car whenever we thought we could get away with it. But in a much greater and, and different way, obviously, the Thessalonians' love for Jesus Christ echoed out in their community. That's the word, exekeo in Greek, echo. We get, it's a transliteration, echo. It echoed out. People heard it all over Greece, southern, northern, and the cities that Paul went to. Look at, look at the text. The explanation of it is that people that Paul was trying to share the gospel with were telling him the gospel from the people he had evangelized. That's how powerful the change in their life was. Unbelievers in Thessalonica must have looked at Jason, who was dragged out. They must have looked at Paul or Aristarchus or Timothy or Silas or Secundus or a variety of other of the leading women, whoever it was, and said, you know what? Jesus is worth more than their lives. He's worth more than their things. He's worth more than their reputation or their honor. He's the treasure of their heart. If people were to see the details of your life, would they conclude that Jesus is your treasure? Do you and I suffer loss with joy produced by the Holy Spirit? Or is there something else, or somewhere else, or someone else that's your joy? Receiving the word produced a great evangelistic fervor. And I have to say, it's awesome to hear this going on in our church, more than probably ever in the 15 years I've attended. I have a story there too. My wife goes to a CC, Classical Conversations. She met a lady in this neighborhood there who also goes with her kids. And she was talking to her about churches, and the lady was like, wait a second, CBC, that rings a bell. And she proceeded to tell my wife that Daniel and Daniel, two guys, Daniel Langenecker and a new Daniel, had stopped at her door and had been sharing Christ with them. Man, I just rejoiced at that. I was like, wow, that is, that is it. And of course, you don't have to join our team to have the same kind of fervor. I've heard of guys, friends overseas who are on a business trip, and for whatever God led them to share in the Uber car, or the driver, the gospel. Like, wow, that's what it's about. It's about the overflow of our hope, our hope in Christ for others. If we say we have a hope that isn't spilling out, we probably don't have that hope. But when that hope, Jesus is our treasure, when hope and seeing him again really is our treasure, man, it spills out everywhere. Conversations, you can't help it. The joy just, you just 
You know, when I met the Drugas, first time I know they love Jesus. They were here, they were ready, they were like on board, they were joyful. They brought, the first time they were here, we were sick. Like a week later, they brought us food. Praise God, that is what it's about. It is that fervor, the joy that's in the Lord. So they had a great example of evangelism, of repentance. I just got to say, it wasn't a soft-pedaled gospel. This was no prosperity gospel. You got to leave these idols that you're offering to and turn only to Jesus. You got to leave that life behind you. In Hebrew, repent is turn around. They had to turn around. And idolatry is a huge deal in their culture. Idols is part of the imperial cult and everything else. Social functions, all of it is tied to that. They left that life behind. And then finally, and I think these three authors leave us here at verse 10 for a reason. Because this is what they're going to pick up as a theme of this book. He says, and to wait. And this word means eagerly expect. Like a birthday party, like a kid waiting for a birthday party, right? They eagerly expected the return of Jesus Christ. And if you think about those three things, faith, hope, and love, that are so common in the epistles, I believe First Thessalonians is about hope, hope in Christ. Hope when we get to see him again, and he's going to talk about that. And he's reminding these Thessalonians, hey, you did receive the word. Be encouraged. You have waited for Jesus Christ. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. So whether you're in your home this week with kids, look forward to the return of Christ. It's our great hope to meet him face to face. Suffer with joy because we have hope in that. And he's going to explain that throughout this letter. Hope in Christ and meeting him face to face. That's my encouragement to you as well. Whatever struggle you have, whatever suffering you might encounter. It's been a hard year already (laughs) for many of us. Maybe you too. Whatever comes your way by God's grace, hope in the Lord. Hope in his return. The Thessalonians were prepared for the return of Christ. They wanted to meet him because they had received the word about him and all of its beauty and power. And they saw Jesus as the treasure of their heart. And it echoed forth. My prayer is that we here at CBC receive the word the same way. And we echo forth in our community as we are doing already. Let's do so more and more. Let's pray. Father, in your presence, as the book of First Thessalonians reminds me, we ask for you to continue to glorify Christ in this church. Thank you so much for healing Tom's body, for allowing him to be here with us again. And we just thank you so much for the work you're doing amongst us. I just pray that people would look at our church in all of its failings, yes, and all of its scars, yes, but because your power is here, that we have received the word in power and in the Holy Spirit. And may your spirit guide us this year and this week. And may Jesus be the treasure of our hearts. It's in his name I pray. Amen.